Reading from Judges chapter 10 and starting at verse 17. When the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, Whoever will launch the attack against the Ammonites will be the head of all those living in Gilead. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead, his mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You're not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you're the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a group of adventurers gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites made war on Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, nevertheless, we are turning to you. Come with us and fight the Ammonites and you'll be our head over all who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king with the question, What do you have against us that you have attacked our country? The king of the Ammonites answered Jephthah's messengers, When Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, all the way to the Jordan. Now give it back peacefully. Jephthah sent messengers back to the Ammonite king, saying, This is what Jephthah says. Israel did not take the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up out of Egypt, Israel went through the desert to the Red Sea and on to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Give us permission to go through your country. But the king of Edom would not listen. They sent also to the king of Moab, and he refused. And so Israel stayed at Kadesh. Next they travelled through the desert, skirted the lands of Edom and Moab, passed along the eastern side of the country of Moab, and camped on the other side of the Arnon. They did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was its border. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who ruled in Heshbon, and said to him, Let us pass through your country to our own place. Sihon, however, did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. He mustered all his men and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. Then the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his men into Israel's hands, and they defeated them. Israel took over all the land of the Amorites that lived in the country, capturing all of it from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the desert to the Jordan. Now since the Lord, the God of Israel, has driven the Amorites out before his people Israel, what right have you to take it over? Will you not take what your God Shemosh gives you? And likewise, whatever the Lord our God has given us, we will possess." Are you better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever quarrel with Israel or fight with them? 
For 300 years, Israel occupied Heshbon, Aroa, the surrounding settlements, and all the towns along the Arnon. Why didn't you retake them during that time? I've not wronged you, but you're doing me wrong by waging war against me. Let the Lord the judge decide the dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. The king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message that Jephthah sent to him. And this is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. And thank you very much, John, for reading that. That's my favourite part of the series of Judges, hearing people read those long sections with tricky names. Let me pray. And that means that the preacher gets up and can just follow in their footsteps um, so you don't have to work it out yourself. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, what a lovely morning it is this morning. We thank you for the joy and privilege it is to gather together here at Shirley Intermediate and to um, spend time singing your praises, coming before you in prayer, sharing the Lord's Supper and remembering all that you've done for us in your Son, but also sitting under your word. And we pray that now for the next few moments as we think on the words that John just read to us, Uh, things that will seem so odd to our ears of events that happened so long ago that you might, by your spirit, help us see the relevance of them today. Speak to us, we ask. And don't just speak to us, change us as a result of the things we've heard. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's uh, as Lee said when she opened our service this morning, it's a long weekend. As you look around, you'll see a number of empty seats as a lot of our people are away. But uh, that will also mean that we've probably got some visitors with us this morning, and it's very good to have you with us. But if you are visiting us, then you may not know that we're in the middle of a series in the book of Judges. We've been in this series since uh, October, no, since September, and uh, we're up to chapter 11. I think the series on Judges has been a tricky series for a few reasons. Firstly, we've had to stop and start the series a few times. We we weren't in it last week. I will occasionally, when I'm speaking about the last passage in Judges, I think, say last week. We didn't look at it last week. We looked at it two weeks ago. We've had to chop and change a little bit. And that's meant that keeping the flow of the story of the book of Judges and the flow of the whole series has been a little tricky. Uh, second reason it's been a tricky series is it's quite a confronting book, the book of Judges. Uh, we've had passages which talked about uh, a sword killing a man so fat that the blubber closed in over the sword. Uh, we've had another one where a tent peg was driven through a person's skull. In a PC world like you and I live in, Judges tells it as it happened, and some of it's been very confronting. Next week's passage, very confronting. So that's made it a tricky series. Uh, But thirdly, it's a tricky series because the things that we hear can just seem very remote. When we come to church on a Sunday, we want to hear things that will help us in our lives, the situations that we find ourselves in. When you just heard that reading that John brought to us, you heard lots of names I'm sure you haven't heard of before, lots of places that you may never have even known existed, and it can all seem very remote. But James reminded us last time we were in the book of Judges that the whole Old Testament was written for you and I. That's what the New Testament tells us, for our good. That God recorded these things uh, of a very different age and very different place because we need to hear them. They contain truths that you and I need in our lives today. So even though our passage today may be very unfamiliar with many of you, and even more so if you're visiting this morning and here for the first time and you're in this kind of series in a world wacky world of judges, this is important for us. 
God's recorded this for our good. And so we may need to work hard this morning, but it will be for our benefit. Now, last, um, last time we were in Judges, and this time, and next week, we're up to the judge known as Jephthah the one that John just read to us. He's basically the central character in three chapters of the book of Judges. So this is a very central figure. Now, last time when James was preaching, Jephthah wasn't mentioned by name, but the historical context is the immediate context of Jephthah. It's exactly what was happening as we meet him. It it built up the situation. Then this week we meet Jephthah for the first time, and then next week his story continues and finishes and climaxes. Now that makes preaching on Jephthah, this section, a bit tricky today because we're in the middle. There's been a bit of build-up that James tackled last time. We've got more to come next time, and so we're in this middle section. See, the whole Jephthah story spans three chapters, but there's really five sections to it. And the five sections each have, at the heart of each section, a conversation that goes on, a dialogue. In fact, you can be more specific. It's not just a dialogue that goes on. There's a negotiation that goes on in all five of the sections that is Jephthah. So if you cast your mind back, if you were here two weeks ago when James was preaching from chapter 10, James, there was a dialogue between God and the Israelites. Do you remember the Israelites had been turning their back on God? They'd been forgetting about him and they'd been worshipping the gods of the other people around them. Uh, But then the Ammonites had come in, taken over this particular part of the Israelites, and now they were kind of in slavery. And so the Israelites had turned back to God and said, God, can you please help us? And there'd been a dialogue between God and the Israelites. There'd been a negotiation whether God would save them or not. Then, next section in in, in these three chapters is the first part of our reading today. We're introduced to Jephthah, and we will see a dialogue between Jephthah and the elders of Gilead. He's from this place called Gilead. The elders of Gilead will come to him, and there will be a negotiation between the elders and him about whether he'll take over as leader or not. Then the third section out of the five uh, is the rest of our passage today where Jephthah gets into a negotiation with the king of the Ammonites. The king of the Ammonites, the Ammonites are the ones who've enslaved the uh, Israelites, so he gets into a negotiation with the king of the Ammonites. Then next week, when we get to the next section, we'll see a negotiation between Jephthah and his daughter, and we'll see another negotiation between Jephthah and the men of Ephraim. So do you see there's a structure going on? There's these five different, quite distinct sections. Each one's got a dialogue or negotiation at the heart of it. And they all focus on Jephthah. So this morning, I can't talk about some of the really important things here because we're going to build to it next week and I don't want to steal the thunder and we have to see the whole before we can see the significant part. So this morning, all I want to do is set the scene. I just want to look at the passage. It was quite a long one with lots of different names that might not be familiar to us. So you might have got lost. So let me tell you the story and then I'll briefly draw out two things which I think are important from our specific verses this morning. So we'll be saving some of the big stuff for next week. So remember the scene that we are in as this passage uh, picks up. The Israelites are in the promised land. They're in the promised land, but they're surrounded by other people groups who are evil, doing terrible things, and they hate the Israelites, and they're wanting, and they are at different times, taking over the Israelites. 
And in chapter 10, verse 17, our first verse, you can see that the particular people group we're thinking about with Jephthah is the Ammonites. So there were lots of other people groups. There's the Edomites, the Moabites, the Philistines, the Amalekites. There's a whole lot of people groups, but the ones we're worried about this morning are the Ammonites. Now we saw last time when James was preaching on chapter 10 that the Ammonites had come in and they controlled part of the promised land that the Israelites were living in. Specifically, they controlled the part of the land called Gilead. Gilead was a part of the land on the east of the Jordan River and Gilead had near about three tribes that lived within it. I say about three because they had the tribe of Gad, they had the tribe of Reuben and they had about half the tribe of Manasseh. So you've got two and a half tribes living in the area of Gilead. The Ammonites came in and took that place over and the Israelites living there are basically enslaved and have been enslaved for 18 years. So in verse 18, the Israelites are camped at a place called Mizpah. They'd gone to God and said, look, God, can you help us out? God had been reluctant, and we'll think about that in a a few moments. But in the end, he, he took pity on them and was going to do something. So they're thinking about what they do. How do they get rid of the Ammonites? And the leaders say, whoever leads us, whoever launches the attack against the Ammonites, will be the leader of everyone living in Gilead. Well, it's then that we're introduced to this central character, this judge in these three chapters, Jephthah. Everyone say Jephthah. I just can't say it properly. I want everyone else to feel how odd it is. Jephthah. There's three H's. How many names have three H's? Hands up if you've got a name with... No, Jephthah. Jephthah. It's an odd name. In chapter 11, verse 1, we find out some things about him. He's from this area called Gilead, but he's got a dad called Gilead, which makes it slightly confusing. Uh, He's a mighty warrior, we're told, but we're also told his mother was a prostitute. He's got a number of half-brothers, i.e. brothers from the same father, but the father and the wife, as you might expect. And as this family grew up, the half-brothers denied Jephthah. He's illegitimate. He's only a half-brother. They they ran Jephthah, who's clearly the black sheep of the family. They ran him out out of town. They told him he wouldn't get any of the family inheritance, and so Jephthah settles in a different place, the land of Tob. Tob? What did you say, John? Tob. That's what I think, too. Tob. Uh, Where a group of adventurers follow him. This guy's a great warrior, remember? He's going to get people, naturally, kind of come around him. But now that this situation has got bad for the people of Gilead, the Ammonite situation, the elders decide, well, we need a great warrior. And Jephthah is a great warrior. And so they go to Tob to get him. And here we see the negotiation take place between the elders of Gilead and Jephthah. And I think both of them do it quite well. I think they're, they're both pretty good as they do, to do this negotiation. Now, remember, they'd said before they went there, whoever leads us into battle will be the leader of the people of Gilead. But they don't say that to, to Jephthah when they first come. They come and they don't make... They they ask him to lead the army into battle against the Ammonites. There's no promise given of what you'll be the leader or anything like that. There's no wrongdoing apologised for because a lot of these people would have been the same people that ran him out of town. It's just a request. And so Jephthah plays it cool. Verse 7. Didn't you hate me? Didn't you drive me out of my father's house, he says? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? And he lets them know, I know exactly what you're in at the moment. I know why you've come. And he's basically saying, it's going to take more than this. What are you going to offer me? The elders reply, verse 8, well, we're turning to you now. 
Come with us to fight the Ammonites and you'll be our head over all who live in Gilead. Well, boom. Now he's just been offered leadership. Uh, Not just during the battle, but afterwards. Not just over the army, but over all the people who live there. Now, this is a good offer for Jephthah, but he knows what these people are like, so he double-checks, verse 9. But they reply, verse 10, the Lord is our witness, we will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah goes with them and becomes the leader of Gilead. And then we find that his first action as the leader of Gilead is not just to jump into battle against the Ammonites. First, he's going to see whether there's any point in, in taking a different approach. And so, verse 12, his first action as leader is to send messengers to the Ammonite king to see if there's a better way to resolve this problem. And they ask the king, what do you have against us that you've attacked our country? And then in verse 13, the Ammonite king responds and he says, when Israel came up out of Egypt, now remember that's the part when Moses had led the Israelites out of Egypt, this is over 300 years ago, when Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok all the way to the Jordan, those three are all rivers, so they're the rivers that signpost where the the, the land is, they took away my land from the Arnon, the Jabbok all the way to the Jordan, now give it back peaceably. And then the whole rest of the reading that John read to us from verse 15 right the way through to verse 28 is one response from Jephthah, that Jephthah gives the messengers and the messengers take it to the king of the Ammonites. So it's just one long answer. So if you got lost in that part of the reading, it's just one response that Jephthah is making to his messengers who pass it on to the Ammonite king. Now I'm not going to spend too much time in his answer, but basically what he says is, Ammonite king, you've got it wrong. Uh, We've never stolen the land from the Ammonites. Uh, In broad brushstrokes, he makes his point in four ways. He argues from history, he argues from theology, he argues from precedent, and he argues from silence. So firstly, he argues from history. In verses 15 to 22, he he outlines what Israel actually did when they were freed from slavery in Egypt and went round. And basically he says, we never took any Ammonite land. We did take some land from the Amorites, Amorites, not Ammonites, sounds similar but it's a different people group, but not Ammonite land. So he argues from history, we never did this, you're making it up. Secondly, he argues from theology. So in verses 23 and 24, if we can have that up, Andrew, he says, it's the Lord who's given us this land. So he says, look, you feel free to keep whatever your little G God has given you, Chemosh. You you feel free to stay there. Chemosh was a Moabite God. You can have that. But the Lord has given us this land, and so it's ours. Uh, third, he argues from precedent, because in verse 25, Jephthah uses an example from years earlier where there was a Moab king called Balak, and Balak had allowed the Israelites to stay there, even though he didn't like it. So he goes, if it was good enough for Balak, it should be good enough for you. Balak let us live here, you should let us leave it, live here. And then there's an argument from silence, or you could say it's an argument from squatters' rights, uh, where in verse 26, Jephthah points out, we've been here for 300 years, why would you change it now? I'm pretty sure it's still the law in England. If you've lived in a place for 12 years or more, it's counted as yours. It's the same kind of argument here. We've been here 300 years. So... um, There's an argument. So four arguments that he gives against what the king of the Ammonites has said from history, from theology, from precedent and silence. 
But then our last verse is kind of ominous in verse 28 because the king of Ammon, we're told, paid no attention to Jephthah's message. And so we can see where this is all going to end up in next week's passage, I think. So that's the passage. That's how it fits together. That's the part of the story that we're in. So as I said, next week we're going to be thinking about some of the bigger underlying issues that are, that are central right throughout. But this morning, just two things to consider from our particular verses this morning. And the first one is, from any background. That's my heading. From, from any background. We find out in this passage that Jephthah, who's the judge, remember that. That means he's the deliverer of God's people. He's the rescuer that God has appointed to rescue his people. We find out that uh, Jephthah was an illegitimate child born to a mother who was a prostitute. Now we're also going to see next week that Jephthah was a fallen man, a human man, but in this passage and in this whole section he's undoubtedly the chosen instrument of the Lord. In 1 Samuel the prophet Samuel looks back to this period in Israel's history and he, peri- uh, he cherry-picks peri- chicks? <laughs> he, he cherry picks a few of the great judges from this era and he names Jephthah as one of them. Uh, perhaps even more importantly, in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, in that great roll call of faith, if you know uh, Hebrews chapter 11, when it counts all the great heroes of faith of the past, it only lists four judges from the whole book of Judges. Jephthah is one of them. And so Jephthah is a very significant person and seen in a very positive way in the scriptures. But here we see he was born out of wedlock. He was the result, it seems, of a sinful and sordid relationship with a prostitute. And that sin that Jephthah had no control over himself, he couldn't help that he was illegitimate, he couldn't help who his mother was, he couldn't help any of those things, but the sin that he suffered as a consequence of uh, found him suffering in this world as a result. It caused friction in his own family and he was cast out by them. Now He had no control over that, do you see that? But he suffered as a result of it. And I want to remind us this morning that this, what happened to Jephthah, happens to all of us at one, at some, in some way. It's life in this broken world as a result of the fall. Do you remember the good creation that God made and looked out on and said it was good? Was ruined uh, when Adam and Eve sinned. Everything was corrupted. Now it's not that everything's as bad as it could be, but it means that nothing is as it should be. There's a taint to it. There's a corruption to it. There's a brokenness to it. Everything in this world as a result of the fall. And so Jephthah, like all of us, grew up suffering and struggling due to things that weren't his fault, just as a result of being a fallen person in this fallen world. Now, there are some times where we suffer because of things we have done, but this is something different. That's what I'm talking about here. And I want to say that what happened to Jephthah happens to all of us in different ways. All of us are born into this world and grow up damaged and broken already because we've been born into a fallen world as fallen people. For some of us, we're born with physical defects that bring us great shame and embarrassment and their their imperfections. For some of us, it's personality traits and characteristics that we wish we could change because we know it's not what God wants, but we're born with it. And we didn't ask for it, and it's not that we've chosen it. It's just it's part of how we've been uh, kind of created in a fallen world as a broken person. 
But for some of us, it may be uh, we've come into a dysfunctional family, a bit like Japheth here, a family where there was abuse or there was neglect or there was a lack of love. For some, we're born into not families at all. None of this we asked for. None of this, but it happens. We have no control over it, but it happens. And sometimes these things can be a source of huge shame for us. We feel like if people knew, they'd never truly love us. If people understood what we'd been through, or the things that are, are, are in our life, they'd never look at us the same way. And we, we might never recover from it. Deep shame. And the problem is that sometimes those things can cause us to worry, well, what does God think of me now? Does God, because if God knows all these things he does know, what does he think? Does he love me? Can he use me for his good and glory? Do you see the wonderful news that Japheth has here? God can use all of us no matter what our background. And it's always been that way, all the way through the scriptures. When God uses human beings, he doesn't pick the best and the brightest and the most beautiful. He picks those like you and I that are broken in different ways and struggle in different ways. It's always been that way. Would you have chosen the 12 disciples if you were Jesus? You've probably heard this letter before. It's quite well known, and um, I'm about to read you a, a portion of a letter. I can't remember where it's from, but it's, it's well known because it's, it's very true in terms of what it's portraying. It's written as if Jesus had kind of chosen the 12, but he hadn't yet made a final decision, and so he put them through for some assessments. He put them through to get some personality assessments to see if they'd be up for the job. And this is what the letter says. To Jesus from Jordan Management Consultants. Thank you, for submit, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men for our aptitude evaluation as you consider them for management positions in your new organisation. All of them have now completed their tests and it's our opinion that most of them lack the background, education and vocational aptitude necessary for your ministry. We recommend you keep looking for potential candidates. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership whatsoever. The two brothers, James and John, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas displays a questioning attitude that will tend to undermine morale. We need to inform you that Matthew's been blackballed by the Greater Jerusalem Business Bureau because he's a tax collector. But, and then it carries on. But one of the candidates shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness. He's got a keen business mind and contacts in high places. We suggest you make Judas Iscariot your controller and right-hand man. Dot, dot, dot. It's a silly illustration, but it makes the point of Jephthah. Japheth. Have <laughs> I said the wrong name all the way through? Uh, some people are saying it. it. It makes the same point that 1 Corinthians chapter 1 makes when Paul, in some wonderful words, writes about us, where he writes, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. It carries on and then it says, It's because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who's become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Now do you see what those words are saying? They're saying that if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, this is who you are to your heavenly father. You're not just someone who's had a difficult background and who are broken in certain ways. You're not just someone who was born into circumstances because of the sinful world uh, that has made your life more difficult. You are in Christ. 
He loves you as his son or daughter. And because you're in Christ, you have a wisdom, you have a a, a holiness, a righteousness, a redemption because you're in Christ. And so don't just worry about who you are in yourself. Know who you are in Christ. And don't just worry about your circumstances now, which may still be difficult because of what you were born. Know that your circumstances will one one day be changed in the new creation. Know what you are in Jesus and keep your mind on that. You may still have pain and difficulty in this life. Sometimes the consequences of sin carry on in this life. Sometimes it continues to be painful and difficult, sometimes even shameful. But on top of that, know that you're in Christ. Know that because of that, you're loved and you have a wisdom and a righteousness and a holiness and a redemption that is yours. And you are loved by God and can be used by God. It also means that if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, not yet in Jesus, this means you never have to worry that your background excludes you. That what you were born into means you're too far from God or too broken for God. Or it can be in Jesus Christ. Jephthah was, you can be. Your defects are not a hindrance to you. Uh, in being loved by God or being used by God for his glory. If you've ever thought you can't be used by God, have a look at Jephthah. You can be. Jephthah's a great example that you can be from any background to follow and serve the Lord. So that's the first one, from any background. Uh, Secondly, much more quickly, God is the true judge. That's the other thing we see in these verses. Jephthah says, I think, one of the most important lines in the whole book of Judges in this passage. It's in the middle or towards the end of his message to the king of the Ammonites. It's a truth that I think sums up nearly the whole book. Remember, the book of Judges is all about God raising up judges. Those judges were individuals who would rescue God's people, save his people, deliver his people. Now, the judges weren't what we think of as judges today, people with a funny wig sitting in a courtroom making decisions. They were more like Judge Dredd, if you know those comic books, people of action who come in and rescue and deliver. They were sent by God to rescue his people. But in verse 27, Jephthah acknowledges in his message that the Lord is the actual judge. He calls the Lord the judge. That is, Lord's in capital there. That means it's Yahweh. It's the same God who rescued them from Egypt. And he is a judge. And that's so important to grasp. Because all the human judges in the book of Judges are flawed. All the humans that God uses in this world, you and me, ministers and bishops and all that kind they're all flawed. But we've got one who's not, the Lord himself. And for us, it's Jesus. Now we're going to see the the, the flaws of um, uh, Jephthah very starkly next week. But we also see the flaws start to creep in here. There's a contrast. I don't know whether you picked this up or not, but there's a contrast going on between our passage today and the passage that James preached on last time we were in the book of Judges. Last time, the Israelites, remember, had treated God so badly they turned their back on him and shunned him, they had to come to the one they treated badly and ask for help. They needed help from the one they'd rejected. And it looked for a while like God might not help them. But then the last verse that James was preaching on said, God could bear their misery no longer. And so he showed grace. He showed mercy on them. He showed love for them. Now, this week it's a similar situation. Do you see that? 
Now, Jephthah is the one who's been wronged. His brothers turned their back on him. They cast him out. They didn't want him. And now they've got to come back to the one they rejected and ask for help. Now, how does Jephthah react? It doesn't say here he couldn't bear their misery anymore. No, what does it say? He negotiated a good promotion. He negotiated a good retirement plan. He secured leadership over a particular area. In fact, you get the feeling he cares more about leadership than those he leads. That's always a worry, isn't it? In any form of leadership, if if someone cares more about leading than actually who they're leading, that's a problem. I think that's that's him. Now, I don't begrudge him that at one level. He, He hadn't done anything wrong there, but it shows the difference between God as judge and all human judges, even when they're good. You and I are so blessed, and I want you to know this this morning, to have Jesus as our judge. And judge not in the sense of making the decision, that's not the, 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 the form of judge that's being spoken of in the book of Judges, as the one who rescues and delivers. You and I are so blessed to have Jesus as our judge. Not just a good human being. Sometimes in our worst moments, I think we can sometimes expect from Jesus what we get from other human beings. But he's not. So we think that, well, the one who rescued us might actually at one day go, well, I rescued you, uh, you owe me, you need to pay up. Or I rescued you but I've changed my mind now and you're out. Or that he's doing something for his own benefit. Or, But we don't have that. We've got the judge who delivers us fully, finally, perfectly. The one who does it totally self-sacrificially, not for his own glory or good but for the good of you and I. Jephthah was right. The Lord is our judge, and we're so blessed that Jesus is our judge. The human judges were all flawed in various ways. All of them, not just the one in the book of Judges, all the human beings that God used, even the great ones through the rest, whether it's uh, King David or the disciples, whether it's the prophets Elijah and Elisha or the Apostle Paul, all of them were flawed in different ways. All the human agents he uses today are flawed in different ways. They, 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 they use their powers for good and ill, and all except one, the Lord Jesus. And that's what I'm telling you this morning. You can trust Jesus with your life because he's unlike any other. More than that, you can trust Jesus with your death, not just your life. We had another funeral uh, amongst our church family on Wednesdays. We lost Ian Hoskins and gathered uh, together to remember his life and give thanks for his life. He was someone who trusted Jesus with his death. We talked about it in the build-up to his death. And you can. He's trustworthy. He's the one who can bring meaning and fulfilment to your life. He's the one and he's the only one who can bring forgiveness and wholeness to your life. He's the one who rescues us. He rescues us from ourselves. He rescues us from the devil. He rescues us from sin. He rescues us from hell. He rescues us from brokenness and weariness. He is our wonderful judge. And he's the one who conquered, won the battle for us, not by a sword or a tent peg, not by a negotiation or a battle, but by laying down his life on the cross for you and I. I say it all the time here, but I say it because it's true. Part of the difficulty of life for you and I in this fallen world is you can't trust anything perfectly because everything changes in this fallen world. Everything deteriorates or breaks or dies. And when you can't trust anything perfectly, you're left just spinning in this world. But that's the world that you and I live in. 
one where interest rates fluctuate, where bodies and health change. If you've got good health here this morning, don't leave this morning before thanking the Lord that you've got good health because you won't always. Health changes. Relationships are fragile. If you've got good relationships at the moment, thank the Lord for them because they won't always be good and sometimes they will, they will end. Circumstances go all over the place. The Lord God is the only thing that is the same yesterday, today and forever. You can trust Jesus because he's the only one you can trust. Jephthah was a good judge. Next week we'll see more of that. But we will also see next week his brokenness, his flaws. But he was right here when he said that God is judge. The Lord Jesus is our judge. Trust him, follow him, live for him. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, opportunity to look at uh, Jephthah this week and next week. We thank you for the reminder that you use people, even broken people like us. And we pray that you would use us, Lord, for your good and glory. And we thank you for our judge, the Lord Jesus, the one that we can have total confidence in, the one who will achieve the rescue perfectly, and the one who we have the privilege of calling our brother and our good shepherd. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen.